This is Books of Titans, the podcast dedicated to the influences of influencers. The books that have helped shape prominent inventors, business leaders, athletes, intellectuals, scientists, and others. We'll talk about what makes these books such classics and at least attempt to have an intelligent discussion about what makes them so important and influential. Hello, this is Eric Rostad coming to you right outside of Nashville, Tennessee. Today, I'm going to cover Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass by Frederick Douglass. This is book 30 of 52 for my 2019 reading list. This episode will consist of three segments. The first will be a brief introduction to the book about the author, why I read it, and my initial reaction. Second segment, I'll cover a few of the most impactful parts of the book. And then the third segment is the one thing, my one key takeaway from this book. Before I get started, I need to issue a warning. This episode deals with slavery. I will be covering very difficult topics. I will quote sections where the N-word is used, so listener discretion is advised. So on to segment one, the author is Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey. Well, at least that's his given name at birth. He also had other names that he that he ad- adopted throughout the years. Frederick Bailey, Frederick Stanley, Frederick Johnson, and then finally Frederick Douglas, after he had escaped slavery into freedom in, in the north of the United States. So it, one, one, of the, one of the people he met uh, once he became free was reading a book called Lady of the Lake, and there was a character in that story called Douglas. So he said, why don't you, why don't you adopt the name Douglas? Don't change your first name, Frederick. Keep Frederick, uh, but, but use Douglas. And, and so that's what we know him from, from that point on. He took that around the time he was 20 years old. So he, he lived for 77 years, so 50-plus years of his life he went by Frederick Douglass. He was born February, February of 1818 and died February 20th of 1895. His mother was black. His father was white. His mother uh, and him were separated shortly after birth, I believe, and uh, his mother would come to, to see him at night. Uh, that was the only time that she was off, and so, so she would walk in the dark at night to see him and, and only was able to see him a few times. His father, uh, Frederick guesses that his father was his master at the time, uh, so his white master. So that would indicate that his mother was was raped by the master, and uh, this apparently would happen quite often. And due to embarrassment to the white master and father and probably strained relations with his own wife, the mother and child would usually be be separated, even though uh, he he was the father of of the child. So that's what happened in this case. Uh, mother and and son separated. Mother died when he was seven, so he didn't really get to know her. And then his father, he was never actually told who it was. He just guessed that it was was his master. He was a slave for twenty years total before he escaped to the north. Once he escaped, he uh, became one of the most photographed Americans of the 19th century. And I, I state this because if you do a Google search for images of Frederick Douglass, there are, are a lot of them, and they are striking. They're, they're just amazing. He would never smile because he didn't want to play into this racist character of a, of a happy slave. And so he tended to look directly into the camera and just confront the viewer with a stern look. And the photos are just stunning. Uh, I mean, you are face to face with this man. He is looking at you in the eye. There are no hidden thoughts or secrets. He wants you to, he wants you to be exposed to your own thinking. 
and they were powerful. Once he escaped to the north, he spent his life in pursuit of the abolition of, of slavery and had a b- very powerful story to tell for that, uh, for that purpose. In page 76 of this book, he states his reason for writing it. Sincerely and earnestly hoping that this little book may do something towards throwing light on the American slave system and hastening the glad day of deliverance to the millions of my brethren in bonds, faithfully relying upon the power of truth, love, and justice for success in my humble efforts and solemnly pledging myself anew to the sacred cause, I subscribe myself, Frederick Douglass. He wrote that in Lynn, Massachusetts, April 28, 1845. So this is 20 years before the end of the Civil War, and he, he's, he's fighting at this time for the abolition of slavery. Here's a quick storyline of, of Douglas's life. Born into slavery in, in Maryland, uh, he's, he sold to different masters uh, throughout his time of, of slavery, and he winds up at, at the Auld House, A-U-L-D, and Mrs. Auld starts teaching him to read. Well, that's until her husband finds out what she's doing and, and reprimands her for, for teaching him to read. But it started a spark in him that we'll find out later uh, what, what that led to. But being able to read, just the, the, the beginnings of being able to read it, it showed him that what was happening was not right. And it, it set his mind to, a, to, a, to freedom. As part of that, he was, he was viewed as not being able to be broken uh, as a man. And to be a slave, you had to be broken. And so he was sent to Mr. Covey. Mr. Covey was known to be a master who would break slaves. So, so slave master was, would send uh, slaves that were not doing what they thought they should have been doing and would send them to Mr. Covey for a year and Mr. Covey would, would break them. And page 38 of the book, Frederick Douglass says, Mr. Covey succeeded in breaking me. I was broken in body, soul, and spirit. But then the very next page, he says, You have seen how a man was made a slave. You shall now see how a slave was made a man. And he reaches a turning point, and he he reaches a turning point with this same man, Mr. Covey, to where six months into that one year with, with him, he confronts him and he fights back. And Mr. Covey really doesn't know what to do. And it puts Covey's reputation at line on the line because Covey is known as a, as a slave breaker. And here's a man who is standing up to him and will not be broken. So that's the turning point. Uh, Frederick Douglass says, this battle with Mr. Covey was the turning point in my career as a slave. It rekindled a few expiring embers of freedom and revived within me a sense of my own manhood. Pretty soon after that, he starts planning his escape. Uh, unfortunately, he was betrayed in that. Later on, he is sold to another master and is able to work outside of, of that house of the master and is able to earn money. The only problem is 100% of that money has to be given back to his master. So he, he's doing backbreaking work, making money, but he has to give it all back to his master. In September 1838, he fled slavery and made it to New York City. He does not describe at all in any detail whatsoever the escape, how it happened, what he did, because uh, that that would have put other people at risk. So we don't get any details in this book. I, I think other books would, would probably go into that. 
one interesting thing once he does get freedom is that he is is lonely and he said loneliness is probably the reason a lot of uh, other slaves did not try to escape because they they at least knew people where they were they they had family and friends around them uh oftentimes that that was even split up but there was at least a comfort or a familiarity that that they didn't want to leave and so he he finally gets to new york but he's lonely because he can't trust really anyone. Uh, he's he's afraid that that anybody he comes in contact with will turn him in to be returned to his master. He'll be he'll be put back into slavery. Um, he he eventually meets some people along the way that that help him and and get him into the abolition movement. As for who suggested the the book, I I don't recall, but I, I do remember hearing about it towards the end of of last year. I mean, I mean, I've heard about this book uh, throughout my life, but um, in terms of, of it popping up again, and, and it may have been related to the book Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom by David Blight. And that, that book won the, the Pulitzer, Pulitzer Award, and uh, I, I'm going to add that to my list for next year. But I, I think it was in light of that book coming out that, that uh, other people were saying, uh, that's great, you should read that one, but you should, you should probably first read the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass. Uh, first. So I, I read this book July 20th through 22nd of 2019. So it took me three days. It's a 69 page book. Uh, and then with the addendum at the end, uh, or the appendix, it's, it's 70, 76 pages total. Took me three hours and 12 minutes and six seconds to read the book, two minutes and 32 seconds per page. The pages are, are packed in. Uh, there, there's a lot of content on on each page. So even though it's a 69 or, or 76 page book, uh, he, he packs it in, in there. As for my initial reaction to the book, I had a similar feel reading this book as I did to man's search for meaning. And you, you know, you know, right away that you are reading something that is on another level than most of the other books that you, you read, you know, that this one is important. And that that's, my my first thought about this book is that this is something important. It's not fun to read. It's not comfortable to read, but this is something important. It's a book that is forged from suffering. And through this Books of Titans project, uh, um, it's been 100, almost 130 books now that I've read in the last three years. And the ones that consistently are the most powerful are the books that are forged from suffering whether that's man's search for meaning, whether it's books forged out of uh, battle, uh, war experiences. It, it, takes, it takes experiences and in, in compacts them to where one person can experience much more of life than most people experience in their entire lives. And, and they experience that in a, in a very short period of time. This is one of those books, and it's powerful for many reasons, but one of the main reasons is that it is forged from deep, deep suffering. I was amazed at how much he packed in, in the 76 pages. I mean, you, you could read one paragraph in this book and it, and it changed your life. And you, you would look back at the paragraph and you'd be like, how did he fit all of that in to one paragraph? Uh, so stunning book in that sense. As for who should read the book, I I rarely say this, but everybody should read this book. Maybe if you are super young, maybe just wait a few years uh, due to some of the content. But 
everyone should read this book. It's an important book and uh, historically important. But as, as I'll get into the other segments here, the lessons from this book are, are unbelievably important. Frederick Douglass's path from slavery to freedom was on one level a physical one. Uh, he had to get himself out of the slave state of Maryland and into the free state of New York. But before all of that, it was a mental path. And it started with what I'm about to read. This, so this comes from page 20 of the book, and it's a rather long passage, but it's a very important one. So stick with me here. Very soon after I went to live with Mr. and Mrs. Ald, she very kindly commenced to teach me the ABCs. After I had learned this, she assisted me in learning to spell words of three or four letters. Just at this point in my progress, Mr. Ald found out what was going on and at once forbade Mrs. Ald to instruct me further, telling her, among other things, that it was unlawful as well as unsafe to teach a slave to read. To use his own words further, he said, if you give a nigger an inch, he will take an L. A nigger should know nothing but to obey his master, to do as he is told to do. Learning would spoil the best nigger in the world. Now, he said, if you teach that nigger, speaking of myself, how to read, there would be no keeping him. It would forever unfit him to be a slave. He would at once become unmanageable and of no value to his master. As to himself, it could do him no good, but a great deal of harm. It would make him discontented and unhappy. These words sank into my heart, stirred up sentiments within that lay slumbering and called into existence an entirely new train of thought. It was a new and special revelation, explaining dark and mysterious things, with which my youthful understanding had struggled, but struggled in vain. I now understood what had been to me a most perplexing difficulty, to wit, the white man's power to enslave the black man. From that moment, I understood the pathway from slavery to freedom. That which to him was a great evil, to be carefully shunned, was to me a great good. To be diligently sought in the argument which he so warmly urged against my learning to read only served to inspire me with a desire and determination to learn. In learning to read, I owe almost as much to the bitter opposition of my master as to the kindly aid of my mistress. I acknowledge the benefit of both. So by seeing... That, that's the end of the quote there. So by seeing... The way his master responded to him being taught to read, he realized that this was something important. The way he learned to read from there is is really interesting, and he he's he's still pretty young at this point. I think um, like thirteen years old, or, or maybe even younger. And so what he would do is, um, as he would go to do errands for his master, he would he would come across white school children. And he would he would go up to these white school children and and kind of make bets with them as to, I bet I bet I can spell this word or I bet I bet I could read this, um, and they and they say no no you can't no you can't, and but that would get these white students to to read the passage to him or or to spell out different words and so he would use different tricks like that to to learn how to spell different words and and read, and then anytime he would do these errands, he would, he would sneak a book with him. And so he, he's not to be caught reading, but he, if he had this book along with him, he could open it up at different points and, and, and keep teaching himself to read. Another thing that stuck out to me from, from this book, uh, a second thing here is, is the power of songs. Here's, here's one quote, quote from Frederick. They would make the dense old woods, uh, and taking myself out of the quote here for a second, he's talking about, um, 
different uh, hearing slaves songs, slaves singing songs. He said they would make the dense old woods for miles around reverberate with their wild songs, revealing at once the highest joy and the deepest sadness. Here's another part. He said this, they would sing a chorus to words, which to many would seem unmeaning jargon, but which nevertheless were full of meaning to themselves I have sometimes thought that the mere hearing of those songs would do more to impress some minds with the horrible character of slavery than the reading of whole volumes of philosophy on the subject could do. That's incredible. Let me, let me read that part again. I've sometimes thought that the mere hearing of those songs would do more to impress some minds with the horrible character of slavery than the reading of whole volumes of philosophy on the subject could do. Frederick then talks of the of the dehumanizing character of slavery on, on how he first came about this through these songs. He says, To those songs I trace my first glimmering conception of the dehumanizing character of slavery. And uh, finally, this last part. Slaves sing when they are most unhappy. And there was a thought going around in, in the North uh, where... I guess some people would travel from the north to to the south, and and they would hear slaves singing, and and they would say, "Hey, oh, the slaves are happy." And and again, in, in segment one, I mentioned that that Douglas would never smile for a photo because he didn't want to go into this this thought that oh, the slaves are happy. Look, they're singing, they're they're happy, they're smiling. Um, but Douglas said, "No, they they're not singing because they're happy. They the slaves sing when they are most unhappy." Third thing that really stuck out to me um, was the issue of religion and the dichotomy of religion and slaveholding, specifically religion as in Christianity. And he even talks that most of the people that he came in contact with were, were Methodist. He has a quote here on page 46. I should regard the being the slave of a, of a religious master, the greatest calamity that could befall me. And that uh, it was really hard to read because he would go to these different masters, and these masters would be very involved in their church. Uh, one was one even had a, a religious experience during the time that Frederick was his slave, and he said after that point he became he became worse and more cruel. That was Captain Ald. That was in the section of of reading where he stopped Frederick from learning how to read. Uh, Captain Ald experienced a religious conversion, but actually became more cruel. And it, it would give, I guess it would give a, a, a reason for the masters to, to be more cruel to their, to their slaves. And he went just a lot of different um, examples of this. He even talked about one of his masters who was not religious and how that was a great advantage. Uh, he said that new master made no pretensions to or profession of religion, and that was a great advantage to to Frederick Douglass. Uh, Frederick started a Sabbath school, so uh, the slaves would have Sunday off, and he started a, a school to, to teach uh, about the Bible. And the master at the time broke that up. And... He, Frederick Douglass said the, the masters would rather have them play games and, and watch those games. They'd rather have them play games than, than to educate themselves or to, to have this Sabbath school. And yet through all this, through all these terrible experiences and seeing 
a horrible side of religion. Douglas starts off the appendix saying this, I mean strictly to apply to the slave-holding religion of this land and with no possible reference to Christianity proper. For between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference, so wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be the friend of the one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I can see no reasons but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. I look upon it as the climax of all misnomers, the boldest of all frauds, and the grossest of all libels. Never was there a clearer case of stealing the livery of the court of heaven to serve the devil in. I am filled with unutterable loathing when I contemplate the religious pomp and show together with the horrible inconsistencies which everywhere surrounded me. We have men stealers for ministers, women whippers for missionaries, and cradle plunderers for church members. So despite all that he went through, it was really amazing to read that in the appendix to, to have him make that distinction between a true faith, true Christianity, and, and what he experienced in the South. The last thing I want to highlight here is just a a very cruel thing that, that a lot of the masters would do in giving a false sense of freedom. So, so come holiday time, uh, slaves would have a, a few days off and the, the masters would encourage them to, to play games and then would also give them alcohol and, as if that was the the issue or that was the the best part of of freedom. And so I'm going to read this section because it's quite powerful. This is from page 45. For instance, the slaveholders not only like to see the slaves drink of his own accord, but will adopt various plans to make him drunk. One plan is to make bets on their slaves as to who can drink the most whiskey without getting drunk. And in this way, they succeed in getting whole multitudes to drink to excess. Thus, when the slave asks for virtuous freedom, the cunning slaveholder knows his ignorance, cheats him with a dose of vicious dissipation, artfully labeled with the name of liberty. The most of us used to drink it down, and the result was just what might be supposed. Many of us were led to think that there was little to choose between liberty and slavery. We felt, and very properly too, that we had almost as well be slaves as man as to rum. So when the holidays ended, we staggered up from the filth of our wallowing, took a long breath, and marched to the field. Feeling upon the whole, rather glad to go from what our master had deceived us into a belief was freedom, back to the arms of slavery. Further on, he said how to, <clears throat> this is how to make a, a contented slave. I have found that to make a contented slave, it is necessary to make a thoughtless one. It is necessary to darken his moral and mental vision and as far as possible to annihilate the power of reason. He must be able to detect no inconsistencies in slavery. He must be made to feel that slavery is right and he can be brought to that only when he ceases to be a man. The, those parts just stuck out to me in the, the cruelty of the masters and the, the dehumanization that they would have to do to, to keep these people slaves. Now on to segment three and the one thing, my one key takeaway from this book, and and it's this. 
Slavery's damage was not just to the slaves. They obviously bore the brunt of it. The cruelty, the inhumanity, uh, the things described in this book are so hard to read. But what Frederick Douglass does a great job of showing is that slavery's damage was to slaves and to the slaveholders. He addressed it in a, a, a kind of a roundabout way throughout, throughout the book. Uh, it wasn't just like a section of here's all the bad things that it does to slaveholders and here's all the bad things that it does to slaves. It's just it's throughout the book you, you, you see what happens on both sides. So I want to highlight what he states for, for each side. Uh, for, for the slave, it's obvious, and I've, I've mentioned a lot of these things, but uh, the, the whippings, he, he was whipped so much in, in his life and, and witnessed so many whippings. The education, not just a little uh, bit of education, like no education. They were not, it was illegal for them to be educated in any way, the slaves. They were not allowed to earn wages. There would be family separation. Uh, Frederick Douglass said this, a single word from the white man was enough. Against all of our wishes, prayers, and entreaties to sunder forever the dearest friends, dearest kindred, and strongest ties known to human beings. And this happened quite often to Frederick Douglass. His own grandmother uh, was sold to a different master at the age of, of 65, if I recall correctly. And she could not do a whole lot physically at that point. And so the master built a house for her in the middle of the woods. Not not a house, but a little hut. Um, and she was to end her days alone, away from all of her family members, everyone she knew. She was to... to live by herself out there and, and make do with whatever she could, could gather out there. And that's just one of the just atrocious examples of dividing a family, uh, making this grandmother go out in the woods by herself for the rest of her life. And then just the dehuma dehumanizing of, of the slave of the person, uh, they would be sold with pigs and cows uh, and, and viewed in much the, the same way. Uh, just numerous examples throughout the book. So that that's on the the slave for the slave side of it. Just atrocious for the slaveholder. Listen to this. So Frederick Douglass talks about uh, Miss, Mrs. Hugh, one of one of his masters, uh, the, the wife of one of his masters, and, and at first she was very kind to to. Um, to Frederick Douglass, but that, that changed over time. And, and he said, slavery proved as injury, injurious to her as it did to me. That's quite a statement to make. And he would see this quite often. He, he would say it was the worst in people who had own, were owning slaves for the first time. Uh, they might come in with uh, a kindness about them, but just the act of them owning another human being and eventually whipping them. Some of the worst people in, in this were those who, who uh, started out kind and just transformed, as, as he said. He talks about uh, other of his masters. Uh, uh, again, this is Mr. and Mrs. Hugh. The influence of brandy upon him and slavery upon her had affected a, a disastrous change in the characters of both. Also for the slaveholder, their religion would actually 
turn them into greater hypocrites. Their anger would would take them to deeper levels of despair. And economically, uh, apparently uh, what's kind of hinted at in this book is that uh, people in the South believed that economically they had to have slavery in, in order to to gain wealth. Um, they thought that slavery, slavery would make people richer because uh, other people were doing the work. But when Frederick Douglass got to the North, he immediately saw that people were wealthier there without slaves. So this, this argument that slavery was necessary to get the economy up and running, he, he said that was proved wrong and incorrect by the wealthier people that he saw in the North. So that's, that's my one key takeaway is, uh, it, it may seem like an obvious one that uh, obviously there's, there's damage on both sides, but for Frederick Douglass to highlight both, both of those, not just to describe the horror of what he lived through, what he saw, but also to say, but look at also what it does to the slaveholder. It turns them into monsters. It turns them into demons. He, he used that word. It turned, it turned especially the, the mistresses, the wives of the masters, it would turn many of them into demons. So to recap, this is one of the most important and powerful books I've read for this Books of Titans project. I would suggest you buy the book and, and read it. it again, it's, it's very short. I bought it on Amazon and I believe it was a dollar something and uh, maybe a few more once, once shipping was, was charged. But there's a paperback version of it. It's very inexpensive, but it's one that you should have in your library. It's one that you should read. And it is a very powerful book. That's going to do it for this episode. Before I sign off, just a reminder that you can now share your own reading list on the Books of Titans website by going to booksoftitans.com forward slash my books. You can also follow Books of Titans on Instagram or Twitter at Books of Titans. And if you haven't already done so, you can subscribe to this podcast and find all of our past episodes through iTunes, the Android Marketplace, or your podcast manager of choice. If you're enjoying the podcast, please make sure to give us an effusive five-star rating on iTunes and share your favorite episodes on social media. I'll be back next week with another book. Until then, keep reading, keep learning, and keep listening. I'm out.